let's start by uh, reading the kind of the broader context around Jesus' purpose statement. We're going to be spending most of our time in Mark's version of, uh, of events. So start reading with me, <clears throat> 121, Mark 1, 21. Uh, I really thought when I chose this text that I would be just spending my time on the, uh, the importance and the power of the spoken word of God. And, uh, of course, that, uh, that, that's, a, that's an important theme here. But uh, as I really got into it in the context and started ambling about in it, I, um, I kind of went in a different direction. And uh, I, hope it's, uh, I hope it turns out to be the, the right direction after all. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives order to evil spirit, orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly all over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. And so he went to her, took her hand, and, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. And that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, and here's the tighter context of the uh, purpose statement. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. And that is why I have come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. I have on the handout that I gave you a, a, a sequence of events, um, which may seem like too much information, but there's, there's one of those, one of those um, periods of time within that sequence that I think is important as the lesson works itself out. So we all know Jesus started in Nazareth. That was the town in which he grew up. Uh, he went from there down into Judea to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. He went from there into the Judean wilderness where he uh, became subject to the temptations. And then after that, he went up back up into Galilee um, to what we can, I think we can understand to be kind of the kind of the north shore of the Galilee and uh, the, the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. 
Um, and the, this, is the third, this is the third era in this sequence um, that after John's imprisonment, Jesus returns to Galilee and he engages in an active itinerant ministry, visiting synagogues throughout Galilee. Uh, and then from there, he goes to Nazareth where he's rejected. And then he goes back to Capernaum and lives there. And that's where our, uh, our text uh, tonight picks up. Now, someone, and, and, and Alan, if you're thinking of doing this, please spare me and don't, but some may be able to pick apart this chronology. Uh, but it's the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, and it might be worth reminding ourselves from time to time, especially when we're studying Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that um, the, the Synoptic Gospels um, chronology is not uh, as an important a thing for them as it would be for contemporary biographers today. They're much more interested in the story and the, the, the theology or the Christology that that story, their stories are trying to support um, rather than when exactly they happened. Um, and uh, even after um, a lot of time in, in studying, the, studying uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, my mind still does spins and tailspins when I'm trying to work out what happened when, but a while back I kind of stopped worrying about that and just tried to get into the stories, stories as they unfolded in, uh, in the Gospels. Um, the, um, I've got a little note here about the, the landscape of Jesus' ministry. I had planned to spend a lot of time on this um, uh, back in 2015. I'm not going to, don't worry about it. But uh, uh, six years ago, uh, Carol and I went with Everett Hufford's group to, uh, to, to Greece and uh, just had a wonderful time. And uh, Charlie promised me that he'd have us over sometime and I could bring my slides with me <laughs> to share with you. But one of the things that I'll always remember about that trip and it was Greece, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't Palestine, when it wasn't Israel, but I imagine that the landscape is very much the same, that you drive for a long way on a bus and you're driving through all these open fields. And then every now and then, uh, you'll see up, the, up at the base of a hill or perhaps out in the middle of somewhere, a little village, a lot of times with red clay roofs on them. And I asked, I asked our, our, uh, our our docent, our guide uh, about this. And she said that it, it has been that way for hundreds and hundreds of years, that they come home in the evenings to the villages. That's where they live. That's where their lives are. And they go out in the morning out to their, their holdings and they work their fields and they do their farming. Um, and, uh, uh, and a lot of times those, those fields have been in the same family for generations upon generations. And I'll always be glad I made that trip. I hope to go to, <clears throat> hope to, go to Israel someday. But um, it gives me a sense. Uh, these were the travels of Paul, but it gives me a sense of what it must have been like back in those days. And um, I think it's good for us to imagine Jesus, especially prior to his calling the disciples. It's good for us to imagine that uh, uh, see him uh, walking, walking along the roads from village to town to small city to another village, encountering people along the way or um, going to their market and, and uh, seeing people, perhaps uh, 
people gathering around after they'd witnessed him do a miracle and, and, and preaching to them. Um, and uh, in, uh, it's when, whenever Luke 4.23 4, uh, tells us this, is when he was in Nazareth, he would, he, would go into, he would go into the synagogue, as was his custom. I thought that was an interesting expression. Uh, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And I wondered about that. Uh, why, why does Luke give us that little detail? Uh, is he trying to uh, remind us of Jesus' um, ritual of piety? As was his custom, he went to worship God with uh, other Jewish people on the Sabbath. Or, and this is what I think he's, he's actually doing, Luke is actually doing, I think he's pointing out to us something of Jesus' mission methodology. Uh, a lot like what we read about in the book of Acts, when Paul is traveling throughout uh, an area, Asia Minor or Greece, and if there was a synagogue or if there was a place of prayer, it was his custom to go to that place when the right time came. And then, and then there he would, he would preach. I think that that's what Luke is, uh, Luke is getting to here when he refers in Luke 4, 23 to, uh, to, to Jesus' uh, custom of going to the synagogue. <clears throat> the, uh, the core message, if you're still in Mark chapter 1, uh, the core message, and it's pretty much the same with John the Baptist in verse 4, and in 115, Jesus' core message, I think it's good to remind ourselves of this. In 115, he said, this was his message, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. It is time. The waiting is over. Uh, the kingdom is near. God is stepping in to establish his rule in a way that he never has before. There's a new thing that's beginning right now. And then he says, repent. Like I said, I really thought this lesson was going to concentrate on the, on the power and the effectiveness of the spoken word of God. But it really revolves around this one idea, as it turns out. If I've interpreted the whole thing correctly. If there's a central idea to these texts, I, I think that this is it. Uh, there is only one appropriate way to respond to Jesus' good news proclamation of the coming kingdom, and that is to change entirely from your past life. A little shift won't do, an adjustment here and there won't do. It's got to be a complete about-face, repentance. And then finally he says, believe the good news. Um, over and over again, we can discern the Gospels using the word belief in a nuanced way. I've heard David refer to this. I've heard Alan refer to it in the last few weeks. When we use the word, <clears throat> we use the word to express an acknowledgement uh, of the Messiahship of Christ. And that's the question we're asked before our baptism. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ? And, and uh, of course, upon that confession, we, we lower someone into the water. And that certainly is a, a part of the use of the word here as well. But as we've seen, they were, many of them, those closest to him, his disciples, uh, were happy and glad to accept that he was the Messiah. But they struggled even up to the moment of Jesus' ascension with the nature of Jesus' reign. 
Again, an idea that's been repeated in this class over the last several weeks. They were uh, they, uh, presented with the notion of Jesus' Messiahship, yes. Son of God, yes. But they all suffered with false presuppositions about that Messiahship. True belief in the good news meant, I think this is that, the idea presented in this text and in, in its context, um, True belief in the good news meant an understanding of the significance of Jesus implied by the signs he was performing. All they saw were the signs. We'll be talking more on this later. Jesus' central message can't be overemphasized. God is even now ushering in a new age and a new order and the appropriate response for all. Jews especially, is repentance. Their failure to repent and truly believe was a major impediment to them being able to understand the true nature of Jesus' identity. Uh, There are two contexts, the one in Luke chapter 4 and the one that we're spending most of our time in 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 Mark 1. I said we're going to spend most of our time in Mark 1, but there's a little thing we need to look at. Actually, it's a big thing we need to look at in uh, Luke. So if you want to flip over there, Luke chapter 4, Luke provides, as you might expect, a, a more of a context to this episode than Mark does, but, but some of the context is necessary to flesh out. What Luke is saying is necessary to flesh out the this incident in in Jesus' ministry. Now, we're not going to read all of this. Uh, You've got the outline there on your handout. But Jesus is in the the Nazareth synagogue, and whether he selects the uh, text reading and exposition for that Sabbath or whether it's handed to him, we're not sure. Could have been either one. But uh, he says... Uh, in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Isaiah 61, 1. Now, uh, I'm not equipped to talk about the, the historical context of uh, Isaiah 56 through 66. You know, first Isaiah and second Isaiah, and there's, some are saying there's even a third idea. We're not going to wait around in, in those weeds. Um, but there, there is no question here that, that Isaiah is referring to a time in Israel's history, and it and he could have been talking about a lot of different histories, a lot of different historical contexts. Uh, it happened during the centuries of bondage in Egypt. It happened during the 70 or so years of time that uh, many of, of uh, Israel's best and brightest were in captivity, captivity in Babylon. Uh, David gave a good overview a few weeks ago of the 200 years or so since uh, since all the trouble that the Jews had to put up with from Syria. And then you had the Maccabean Revolution, which started out great, but then was very disappointing in the end. 
and then now for about 60 years, they'd been under Roman occupation. Um, there, the, the, the people w were well uh, aware of the times in their history and the time that they were experiencing right then of unrealized anticipation of something that's coming that's going to be better. Something that's coming that's going to make us forget about all this suffering and despair that we've had to experience for all these years. The, the national lament, I bet you could remember it. How long, O Lord, in the Psalms. When Jesus came on the scene, um, uh, he is, and preaching in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, he's, he's, he's hearkening back to this time when Isaiah was prophesying this, this, this national restoration, this national uh, renewal and reclamation of the glory days of Israel. He says, a glorious time is coming when Israel will enjoy the Lord's favor. favor. Israel's enemies will serve them. Zion will once again be, a, be like a shining beacon on a hill. There will be peace and prosperity. The people will want for nothing. But this time of redemption will be preceded by a period of righteous fasting. That's Isaiah 58. And of true contrition. Chapter 59 ends with this saying, Isaiah 59 ends with this saying, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And then Isaiah 66, 2 reinforces the idea, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. So you see, you see what, what, what Jesus is setting up here. I, I am stepping into this place not too much unlike the, the eras of suffering and despair that, but that my prophetic predecessors have done. Stepping into this role of Isaiah. I'm declaring to you that the time has come. It's the year of the Lord's favor. It may not be great right now, but things are getting better. He, he says that this scripture is being fulfilled in your presence, in your hearing right now. Uh, uh, but he adds, he adds something to it. Because this is not going to be a renewal like the others in the past. This, this, we've, we've, had, we've experienced the kingdom of God before. But this is going to be an ushering in and a realization of the rule of God like nothing you've ever seen before. That was what was different about it. Well, the people in the synagogue in Nazareth uh, approved heartily of Jesus' message. Up to that point, it really was good news. Hey, he's quoting Isaiah. He's, he's bringing us some good news about something that's coming better. We can get into that. And then Jesus says, now you all must be thinking to yourselves. You're hearing this message and you're thinking that's good. And you must be thinking to yourselves, okay, well, uh, now will, will you choose to uh, ful fulfill some of this time of God's favor by doing like you did in Capernaum and healing our sick and casting out our demons and feeding our poor? You going to do that now, Jesus? Uh, and Jesus provides two Old Testament illustrations. Naaman, the leper, cleansed of his leprosy, and the widow of Zarephath, who, uh, who had a little bit of flour and oil, and um, Elisha miraculously um, 
multiplied miraculously, uh, made it so that, that that oil and that flour never ran out. Both were Gentiles. Both acknowledged the prophetic identity of Elijah and Elisha, and both of them complied with the conditions given them. It took Naaman a little time, but finally he came around to it and did what it was that Elijah told him. Now, exactly what set them off? I'm not sure. Um, they were reminded of Gentiles receiving a blessing over Israelites. Uh, they were implicitly, at least, rebuked for their impenitence. And Jesus put himself in the place of the great prophets. Maybe some of them thought it was presumptuous for him to do that. Maybe it was all three of these. <clears throat> Luke's primary point is that the people of the little village of Nazareth, unlike the widow and Naaman, had not repented. They had not accepted the significance of Jesus' presence among them, and they did not believe the good news of the dawning kingdom. Whether it happened, whether this was the same event repeated in Mark chapter 6 or whether it was another time, uh, Mark 6 reinforces this recalcitrance of the people in Nazareth to think the way they ought to think about who Jesus was. Well, uh, head back over to, uh, to Mark uh, chapter 1 and we'll, we'll focus our attention there, Mark, not Matthew. Mark's version of events is, is uh, closely parallel uh, to, uh, to Luke's version. Uh, he leaves out the, the, the Nazareth, Nazareth rejection. Um, uh, both happen, though, both of these happen in Capernaum. Uh, it's all right there on the northern shores of Galilee. It's interesting to note, uh, I think, at the beginning of your, your handout that uh, as far as we know, uh, 11, of 12, 11 of the of the 12 of Jesus' disciples were all Galileans, right up around that area. Uh, Judas uh, possibly was a was a Judean. Um, both uh, of these accounts happen in Capernaum. He teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum. He, in the synagogue, he casts out a demon. They go over to Simon's house, <clears throat> where uh, he heals Simon's mother. Um, after six o'clock in the evening, after Sabbath has passed, uh, people show up at the door. They show up at the door uh, with quite a, quite a crowd of people show up at the door and they want some of this that Jesus is handing out. They want, they want their sick healed and they want their people with demons to be cast out and I can't fault them, can't fault them for that. They can be faulted for what they don't do or what they don't think, but they can't be faulted for wanting all those blessings uh, from Jesus. Um, we've heard in this class previously this uh, theme running through particularly Mark. Um, it's the, the identity of Jesus. Many times in one way or another, the question is asked, who is he? Who is this? Um, of course, the classic example uh, pops up uh, in Matthew 16, 18. Who do people say that I am? The identity theme is especially relevant in this story. The, the, the reader I'm speaking particularly about the, the casting out of demons, in, both in the synagogue and uh, at the door of Simon's house. In both cases, the demons identify who he is. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that the, the reader of, of, uh, of Mark and of Luke is left to ponder the irony of the situation. 
and I think this has been referred to by David or Alan before. Um, how is it that the demons understand the truth and revelation behind the exorcisms, but the people don't? Demons know who he is. They know what he's about, casting them out of people. But the, the, but the, the Jewish people who are witnessing this don't understand the, the significance of it. Why can't the people of Capernaum see the larger significance to Jesus casting the demons out other than that he's just a very effective exorcist? And why can't they see that his healings uh, point to something of greater moment than that he is just a healer? That's not, that's not what they're getting at. Uh, well, the next morning after this, what must have been an exhausting night of, uh, of, of ministry, it's a matter, I suppose, of, of some conjecture, the, 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 just the energy that would flow out of Jesus when he was performing these miracles. I, it's got to have been, even if he just went without sleep and was, was standing up to do his work in ministry, but the, the spiritual energy emanating from him, that's all a matter of conjecture. It's interesting to think about. We can't be sure about that, but he must at times have just been exhausted, barely able to stand. So he gets up, nevertheless, uh, early in the morning, uh, and he leaves and he goes and finds, this is a common theme that we, we see in the Gospels, that Jesus just has to, has to get away, he finds a place where he can be alone and pray. He, he realized, uh, or maybe I should say that many prayer giants since then have taken his cue and come to realize that once everybody wakes up, it can be a challenge to find a little time for prayer. Um, what does he pray about? We're not told explicitly, but there are some hints here. There's a pattern of Jesus withdrawing to pray before impending crises. A pattern to Jesus getting away by himself, spending time with the Father prior to to challenges uh, that are coming up. Uh, the, the, the wilderness temptation, for one, the Garden of Gethsemane, but there are others as well. And if we look closely, we can detect a crisis going on right here. It's, it's kind of subliminal, but it's, it's there uh, nevertheless if we really reflect on this passage in this context. Um, the word crisis literally means a turning point. It's a, it's a moment of decision. Uh, Jesus knows that a turning point in his ministry is coming in which he's going to have to make a choice. Uh, let's see what that, uh, that choice involves. Um, we, it'll, we'll see as we continue to, to, to read through this, to look through this. While, uh, while Jesus is praying, Simon and his friends come out looking for him. They're hunting him. Um, in other literature, I read some, but read someplace uh, a commentator um, making the observation that the word "use" here is also used in other literature to to describe people who are hunting game. They're pursuing him. They're, they're after him. They're actively trying to locate where where he is. Um, wh why bother it? What could be so urgent or important that they need to hunt Jesus down? 
they exclaim, everyone is looking for you. There's an urgency and there's a tone of rebuke in that exclamation, if you look at it closely. Jesus, everyone's looking for you. What are you doing here, out here all by yourself? All those people already this morning, we're, we're having to, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to feed them all? What are we supposed to do? We can't, we're not ready to do, to do those healings and exorcisms yet. Uh, you can, the subtext here would be something like this in our time. When everyone in town has shown up for your services this morning, you weren't in your office where you were supposed to be. That's got to be something that located preachers have got to deal with all of the time. Maybe that's why I never became one. They, th they think that you, if you're not in your office, yeah, I know there's people out there to minister to, but we want you right there. We want you in that office. We want you by that phone. Well, anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. It vented some, but... Um, that's, uh, that's what they were getting after. You weren't, you weren't here. We expected you to be here. And Luke includes in this something that Mark doesn't. They tried to keep, from, they, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They tried to keep him from leaving them. They wanted him to stay right there in Capernaum, right there in his adopted new town. Well, in this time of prayer... I said that there's a crisis going on here, and I really believe that's what's going on. Jesus is struggling against another temptation, a little bit like the one in, in the wilderness earlier. Uh, the people of Capernaum, Simon and the other disciples, were, were just fine with the idea as well. They all wanted Jesus to set, up, to set up his own little fiefdom right there in Capernaum. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, 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 to make this assumption. Wanted him to stay there, wanted him to set up his headquarters, wanted him to set up his messianic outpost from which he could issue orders and send out people. Uh, let's, let's, keep it, let's keep it right tight in here. And we can't, we can't be blamed for thinking, and, and why not? Why would Jesus not want to, why would that not be his preferred MO rather than traveling around? the highways and the byways and, and preaching to people. Uh, um, he could train up evangelistic forces right there and send them out. Um, he's the son of God after all. Why should the son of God have to get his sandals dirty hobnobbing with Galilean hicks? It's set up right there in Capernaum. It's, it's a lovely landscape and you've got the lake right there and a nice little retreat destination. Why did Jesus choose his method that he had already engaged in prior to calling his disciples, prior to all these events? Why did Jesus choose this method of countryside evangelism in the first place? Forget for the moment about Capernaum. It, it, um, it does, at first blush, seem much more efficient to set up headquarters and uh, forget Capernaum, you know, set up, a set up in a, a major metropolitan area. Why not, why not Jerusalem? Oh, forget about Jerusalem. Forget Israel. Why not Alexandria or Athens? Or just, just go for it and set up your headquarters in Rome itself, in the center of the empire. Does anyone doubt that if God had not chosen to do that, there was a power behind him to do it? 
You could go there and just by sheer force of the miraculous, he could go straight to the emperor. If the emperor didn't like what he was saying or didn't like what he was doing, he could, he could flash him with uh, these, one of these fantastic miracles. He could, he could bring someone in there demon-possessed and cast the demon out, or he could heal somebody right in front of him and just convert the emperor, Constantine, 300 years early, convert the emperor, and then everybody below the emperor could be forced at spear point to believe what the emperor believed. Seems like a plan. <laughs> and I bet I know what most of you are thinking right now. We've already been through this. One of Satan's temptations was, to, was for Jesus to do exactly that. You know, look at all these kingdoms. I'm going to give them to you right now. All you've got to do is make me your Lord. Well, of course, Jesus didn't go that route at all. But he is facing this temptation. Why not just set up in, in Capernaum? Everybody, I'm popular. Everybody wants me to do this. Why don't I just go ahead and do it this way? Um, but that's why Jesus chose. And the Father directed him to preach and to minister among the people. Uh, the, broader, the broader he sowed the seed, the more people there would be who one day would remember him and his message and would respond appropriately after the resurrection and the advent of the Holy Spirit. It's the seed scattering principle. Have you ever wondered about that? All, all of these people that Jesus would have seen, the hundreds, the thousands, perhaps the tens of thousands, and the little villages and the towns all around Galilee and Samaria and Judea, a lot of those people he might have spoken to for a few minutes or an hour or two and never saw them again. Never saw them again. But after the, after the church got started and after the, the advent of the Spirit and all of those things, and on the disciples and the apostles and the, 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 people who, the, the people who would mimic what Jesus did earlier and travel about the country preaching, how many of those folks that only saw Jesus one time for a few minutes still remembered? And it was, it was that encounter that, 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 that turned them over, that, that won them in the end, that helped them in that moment of decision to repent and to, to confess and, and to believe. Uh, I, I can't help but think that that's why Jesus said, let's, uh, no, let's, let's leave Capernaum. These folks, um, they're not really changing where they need to change. They're not really responding to the message the way they really need to. I'm probably wasting my time staying here any longer, at least for now. And let's go out to the villages and the towns. Uh, that's, why I was, that's why I was sent. That's the method. That's the mode that the Father has sent for me. Well... As observations, comments, uh, dis discussion. Um, you've, uh, you've got uh, Nazareth and you've got Capernaum. The disciples uh, all fail to understand until the crucial time after the, after the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost. They all fail to understand the significance of Jesus' presence, message, and his ministry. And a quick glance over to Luke chapter 10 confirms that. Luke 10, 13 through 15. 
Uh, look at the woes. Remember the woes that Jesus pronounced on that little triangle of Galilean villages? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. So even later, they still, they still didn't understand. Their, their impenitence, their slowness to understand has, uh, has persisted. <clears throat> So it was, the, it was the John 6 fallacy. They were interested in Jesus for the free food or for the miraculous signs, but Jesus in the midst of all that kept insisting, the work of God is this, that you would believe in the one he has sent. Jesus could have built the kingdom on the foundation of great works and great deeds if he had chosen to do that. Human tyrants had been doing that for millennia. But he knew that that's a sandy foundation. Jesus built his kingdom on the solid rock of the word of God, preached to whomever would listen, large cities or small villages. The need for contrition, repentance, confession receives, I think, short shrift in, uh, in contemporary churches. As much as Jesus emphasized it, these I'll never forget, uh, wasn't here, but I was leading singing at some place, asked me to sing the imitation song, and I chose one of those songs that, uh, it was, it was um, it, it's got the word sinner in it. And I received a gentle rebuke from one of the sisters in the congregation. People don't like, to, don't like to think that they're sinners. She said, I said, well, I'll choose a better one next time. I, I didn't even know about that part. Uh, not, and I'm not saying I, I would not at all uh, advocate for a constant menu of, of eating fire and brimstone all the time. Uh, but occasionally, it, I think it's good that we be reminded from the pulpit that, uh, yes, uh, we have received God's mercy, but we're still and always will be in need of God's, of God's mercy. And we respond to that offer of mercy by a sense and spirit of, of contrition. Lord, if there is some way that I need to change, please convict me of that. Um, I've, I've been on this planet long enough to know that uh, I can be feeling pretty good about myself. I, my wife and I get along most of the time really well. We have a happy home, uh, three grown sons, and they all believe and still go to church. And, you know, I can feel pretty good uh, about that. And then all it takes is for someone to remind me, you don't have it as together as, as, you, as you sometimes think that you do. I just want to close with this idea that we should never lose the sense as I said before, that we are recipients of God's mercy. We, we are sinners saved by grace. 
we're sinners saved by grace. And then someone says, yes, but we're saved by grace. And the other person says, yes, but we're sinners saved by grace. There is that tension. There's always that tension. We must understand equally that we are sinners, but we are saved by grace, thank God.